I'm Jay Mac. And I'm Jess. And you're listening to Base Code Podcast. All right, so this is uh, episode five, four, question mark? Yeah, I can't remember now. We're already getting bad with episode numbers. I know. We screwed up with our offset. <laughs> off by one, off by one errors. We screwed up <laughs> with the episode zero. This is chapter four of Base Code. So we're going to call it episode four. Sweet. Cool. So, what's been going on? Oh my gosh, it was a trying day. Tell me about it. <laughs> Part of me is reluctant to get into it in a way, but I do think it would help because, you know, if nothing else, you know, maybe we edit some of this down or whatever, because I, I don't want to drone on about it forever. But I guess really two things. First, I'm so glad you were in a different time zone, like just sleeping away the last eight hours. <laughs> me too. Because things to the second point escalated quickly so it's pretty crazy um i've seen this on twitter but i've kind of never been the object maybe of that kind of mob mentality yeah and uh so i'm sure our listeners or maybe some listeners are probably aware hopefully honestly you're not because it was it was really all just kind of just again just kind of this this misread um on, on both sides to be fair and so again, just to kind of sum it up, because uh, because you know I don't really want to rehash it, but just to, if nothing else, catch you up, because again, I'm I'm just so glad you get didn't get dragged you know dragged into it. And honestly, I tried to avoid it for as long as I could until it really seemed to be a situation where, gosh, the only way out of this is to just kind of chime in and be like, look, everyone, we'll just we'll just get this fixed, so to speak, you know. So um, long story short, the loosely coupled name was actually an existing podcast or a previous podcast that's up for debate apparently what um it is or isn't what is fact is that that podcast has not released an episode since october of 2015 so four years they hadn't tweeted until today (laughs) in two years and so for all practical purposes I figured they were dead. I actually even, and this is the part, you know, we had talked about this. We were like, well, the .com's available. Let's reach out to them. And we never got any response. And again, this turned out to basically be the misread, is that based on the years of inactivity and the no response of attempting multiple attempts to reach out to them, we kind of, or well, I'll just say I had said, you know, naively, well, I, I don't see the harm in using it. Like, it's a generic programming term. Like, I don't know. Yeah, and it was it was a while um, between, you know, when we first reached out and when we decided, all right, that nothing nothing's happening here. It's not like we kind of reached out and then, you know, a week later, we're like, you know, let's go with it. It was, oh, gosh, it was a long time. I think what made it... A little difficult was it was actually a podcast that was run by members within the PHP community as well. And so I think that was probably the extra bit of context that maybe made it a, a little more raw for some people. Like, a, I think it led people to be a little more reactionary. Like, if this was like a rail car podcast called Loosely Couple, <laughs> I don't think anyone would care. You know, that's kind of the, for me, that's the irony of it. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of the day, they had a point. I just think that the way in which it was gone about really didn't have to paint this picture of being like such a personal 
you know, villainous uh, theft. Because <laughs> it's, again, it's just not at all what it was. So, you know, like I said, my literally second tweet to them and their first tweet back to me, I mean, was, was um, the first word in that, in that tweet was sorry. Like, sorry. Please answer one of your emails and let's, let's get this resolved. But instead of doing that, it was three hours of just very personal, very aggressive, you know, tweeting. And it was just like, okay, guys, look, this is out of hand. <laughs> Let's change the name. It's no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> like, my bad. So hopefully as you're listening to this now, all of it's, you know, hopefully water under the bridge. So Yeah. So you mentioned changing the name. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of the only course of action we were left with, I think. So... And, you know, it's kind of the easiest approach at this point. So, yeah, at this day and age, like, there's a name for everything. Like, naming things is hard, right? Yeah, I think we've uh, we've got a chapter on that. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, if we get there, <laughs> if we're not booed, if we're not booed off the, the podcast stage first. Yeah. Gosh. Um, so, yeah, j- you know, jokes aside, um, I think I think the thing to do is just just call it the base code podcast. Or as listeners have already seen, we've we've made that change. But uh Again, it's just kind of the irony. Like, I, I didn't want this to be like this salesy, quote unquote, branded podcast exactly for the book, because who knows where it would go in the future? That that was exactly the point. And again, one of those layers of the loose coupling, us being on other sides of the globe was loose coupling. Us being, you know, different development backgrounds was loose coupling. The topics, loose coupling. Guy and girl, loose coupling. Like, yeah. There's just so many levels, which is why we loved it. Now we're tightly coupled to uh, to base code. <laughs> now we're tightly coupled to base code. Gosh. <laughs> That's right. That's funny. No, it helps. It's good to laugh. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was it was pretty surreal, actually, to kind of, yeah, have these people out there listening to what I was talking about and... I had my uh, I had my partner go on Twitter first and like kind of check the comments first because I'm like everyone's just going to be piling on me, attacking every little thing I said. But actually, <laughs> it was it was nice. People were like said they enjoyed it. Um, I got you know a few a few new followers. So yeah, it was a pretty pretty exciting day. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, we may have started off you know with a little bit of a little bit of negativity there but you know again hopefully that that should be definitely resolved at this point yeah i mean again the it was fun like you know i was excited about it you know i'm always excited to launch these products but i i think this being something a little bit new and being in a way like more i don't know it was like more vulnerable maybe like in a way which is is probably why today was a little bit hard but I don't know, like maybe it was more, um, there was something more personal about getting your voice out there, maybe, I guess. Does that make sense? Did you have that feeling maybe? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I um, Just the thought of other people listening to me talking. I mean, it's the same with anything like public speaking, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, the fact that it's kind of recorded, people are listening to it maybe in their cars or in their homes. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a new experience for me and something I kind of had to get okay with the idea of it yeah but yeah once i got past the initial nerves and anxiety it it became fun and exciting absolutely yeah i think i think the launch you know was definitely fun um it was cool to kind of release them back to back you know after watching the laravel snippet and kind of taylor doing the same thing launching on transistor which is what you know we're launching on 
and uh you know kind of seeing the questions he was getting asked like you know i was expecting to to have the whole you know when are you going to be on itunes when are you going to be on you know google casts or you know all these all these different you know podcast platforms like so hopefully by the time you're listening to this you're able to find us on itunes as well how about that because that's definitely yeah without a doubt got to be one of the the large you know platforms yeah all right so should we start on a new episode absolutely let's get into the practices sounds good using objects yeah i'm really excited about this one um why is that well i think objects are awesome (laughs) it's probably where where it kind of where it comes from and it's still something that's quite i still get excited about it when i can find you know a really good way of converting a primitive into an object that just makes sense that fits like the domain and all this sort of stuff and i'm not really talking about specifically just like object-oriented programming as the the hard technical sure. fact of it it's more when you can like kind of express your your domain in this way that when you're reading it in the code because it, it does create more readable code because you're creating you know like it helps you write code that is more like what you would speak so yeah i find it's always one of those things that when you get it right it's really really satisfying um so yeah and it's it's also one of those things that i think a lot of people again they might think oh objects i use objects all the time i know objects like i'm using you know a framework and my framework uses objects for the controllers and it uses objects for this and it uses objects for that but they might still actually be writing a lot of procedural code and passing around a lot of primitives um, which isn't a bad thing but sometimes you might be using objects without fully, you know, like using all of the potential for them. Um, so hopefully we can kind of talk about some of that and, and other ways you might use them outside of having a, you know, an object as a controller or whatever it might be. Sure. I totally agree. Like it can be difficult to maybe or see maybe how you could use objects in certain situations where, you know, because again, you maybe you're thinking, well, I already am, right? But there's so many ways to use little objects, and it's really the key thing for me is that organization, that encapsulation, which is one of the pillars of object-oriented programming, just provides so much more than the formality of the data. It's also, to your point, like a place to house logic. It's a place to hide complex details surrounding you know, how that object is used or how it behaves, and that's really where the value of objects for me comes across again in a more human capacity in a, in a more domain mapping capacity and all all these things are really nice uh but for me it's more that readable that organized feel like like you were saying like that it just when you find the right object to use it's kind of like everything just again feels like it falls into place like falling into place the flow that's all readability those are just different names for the same thing so so for people out there that maybe aren't really familiar with like primitives and what that actually means. The chapter using objects was a nod to the kind of original uh, code smell of primitive obsession. And this came from Martin Fowler's refactoring where he outlined about a dozen of these. Uh, but it's our tendency to use these kind of low level or primitive or basic or scalar uh, data types, right? And these are, you know, int, float, string, and for something like PHP, an array. And for PHP specifically, again, since that's where most of our experience lies, and I'm, I'm sure that's where at least our core audience comes from, is, 
you know, those associative arrays, like, gosh, we, we shoot those things around like candy and uh, <laughs> we just use them for everything. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's really what we're after here. And so that's, that's probably the ready example, uh, you know, for our audience to kind of get in their mind. So there's probably better ways to do that. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's the whole focus of the practice of using objects is to try to recognize scenarios where you can take those primitives, whether it's a set, a group of primitive data that's coupled uh, together, or if it's, you know, just a way to formalize a associative array, you know, there's a chance in there probably to use an object. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's, um, it's bad to start off with primitives. I think it's quite natural when you're trying to figure out a piece of logic that you start off with the primitives because it's kind of an early abstraction, I guess, to start creating value objects before you even know what you're building. So I think where it, where it just happens is a lot of people start writing their procedural logic with these um, with these primitives, and then that's where they leave it. Whereas I think there's a really good opportunity to refactor two objects um, as opposed to just thinking, oh, I need to start off writing an object, which, you know, if you can do that, that's great. But, you know, that's not always the, the easiest place to start from. Yeah, I'm all for like keeping momentum. You know, I've said this probably on the podcast before, but just like keep the keys moving, you know, keep typing. Like, you know, the most intimidating thing can be to sit back and start to kind of, you know, focus on this blank screen or go into your mind and try to just like over-architect. Like, I, I just think that leads to more trouble than than it solves. Um, and so for those reasons, I absolutely agree. Like start with the primitive. And honestly, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the primitive. I, you know, someone's probably said this, but... It's one of those things where I feel like primitive obsession leads to primitive code. And so what I mean by that is if you're always using just integers or strings or even associative arrays, your code's always going to have to have this layer of complexity because you're dealing with kind of these low-level things. So you're going to have to have really low-level checks of like, is this array key set or is this integer greater than one? you just don't have expressive code. And I think you said this earlier about other languages. Like one of the things for me with Ruby, when I learned it probably a decade ago now, just my mind was blown that I could do like one dot times, you know? And it was just like, wait a second, the, the literal one dot times three and it did something? Like that blew my mind. And, and the people, you know, my coworkers that were more familiar with Ruby, like, they were like, you know, obviously, of course, you know, just very like, you know, very ego about it. They were like, yeah, Ruby's a true object oriented language. And I was like, holy cow, I see what you mean. Like, you know, like I was, again, just naive. Like I was like, wow, yeah. Yeah. But no, like really, so there's very fascinating things when you start to, again, kind of sample that in other things or you see these possibilities, you kind of, your mind gets opened up to, again, move away from you know, writing maybe this, this lower level code. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side of it though, I think there probably is an object obsession Sure. where people might go too far. There's always an extreme. And things where it only needs to be a string, like it's, you know, it's the title of something and it doesn't need to be anything more, but someone creates a value object for it, then you're probably going to end up making your code more complex. So yeah, it's one of these things where I think there's a really good balancing point and it really does, I think in this case, it is a bit language specific in terms of, you know, what to use and when, and you kind of, you do sometimes need to work within the bounds of the language and what the language kind of affords you and what other people looking at your code are going to be expecting. For sure. And I think, you know, as with anything, there, there are trade-offs. So 
But let's maybe let's maybe try to you know obviously I know base code you know goes into super depth on this and lots of different code samples, but maybe let's try to get a little more specific you know for the audience and and just kind of like maybe a time when you were using recently maybe some primitives if you know hopefully just a small example we can try to set it up because I know it's tough to talk about code but hopefully um, I think it's worth a shot to, to get a little specific. Yeah, well, I mean. To be honest, the one that comes to my mind is actually the one from base code because it's like literally, you know, I read it uh, quite recently, which is when you were dealing with two uh, two pieces of data that are related. So in the example, it was it was money. So you had an amount and you had a currency. And so in the code, you kind of need to pass around these two things together and they're always belonging together and there's certain uh, operations you want to perform on them. So in the book, you kind of talk about, you know, um, abstracting that out to like to a money object and the money object has an amount property and a currency property. Yeah. Um, so that's a really good example. And then you can do all sorts of things like say you're doing currency conversion. You can add a, uh, you know, like a method, like a convert to currency on there, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the thing to spot there at a high level is look for what they call, you know, data clumps or data groups or some kind of coupling, whether it's temporal coupling, uh, meaning like these variables are used at the same time or some kind of way in which they're used together. So to your point, money might have an amount and a currency and then uh, something along the lines of like a range is a classic, you know, object. So you have a min and a max, like because that logic's always used together, if you're always using those as an integer, then your checks are probably always the same. Like, is number greater than or equal to min and less than or equal to max? Like, you're always having that complex detail, whereas if you wrap that up in an object of some kind, you might be able to say something like within or includes or something much more readable, much more expressive to what's actually going on. Yeah, and I think you don't just have to find, you know, like two pieces of data. Like, you can easily create a value object for one piece of data. I think one of the classic examples is a date. Often that'll be passed around as a single object. It, it is made up of multiple pieces, of multiple properties, I should say, in that it, you've got years, months, days, things like that. But even other objects, like say you were dealing with money and you weren't worrying about currency, there's still things you might want to be able to do with money that you can't do with just, you know, the float or the integer on its own. So there's kind of different ways that you, or different reasons you might reach for, for an object. I think there's definitely a lot of detail that we can unpack there, but when you said something about dates, it made me think kind of particularly with PHP, and this might even be available in other languages, but again, PHP is my go-to. So uh, Carbon, uh, which is you know the, the date time library, but like, I mean, look how many wonderfully useful readable methods that they have around something like a date. And, you know, especially coming from PHP, which is like, the good old date function and we're passing it these strings and you know um unix timestamp long you know uh, floats or whatever and it's just kind of like when you go back and you look at that you realize kind of how crusty it was and how many like odd date comparisons you were having to do and again php as a language has you know built-in date time objects as well now and in fact carbon's mostly these days just a wrapper of that but again it just demonstrates the power of using objects and this ability to just tackle any problem yeah i agree like if you if you can kind of visualize if you were trying to work out how how far between two dates and you were trying to do that just procedurally you might you know convert them to seconds and then um you know subtract one from the other and when you write that as procedural code it's 
yeah, it's it's not readable. You've got to kind of unpack it in your head. Whereas when you're using an object, when you're looking at the higher level code, you can just say, you know, this date different to this date, and you, it it reads like English. Yeah. So I mean, we talked about we've talked about value objects, which is basically when you take, you know, like generally a primitive or just something in the real world, and you represent it as an object. Um, and then we also mentioned immutability, which is where you have an object that once it's instantiated, you cannot change it. And I think immutability is kind of scary to some people at first, but at the end of the day, all it means is anytime you change the object, you actually are getting a new instance of the object. You mentioned, you know, value object and, and immutability and I totally agree. And again, it's nice because one of the really difficult things, obviously in programming is managing state. And, you know, so you have to have a lot of different checks around what's this thing's state or what's this thing's properties. But once you start to introduce, you know, true immutability, you kind of start to have to worry about that less and less because you're only ever getting kind of a new instance. You're never kind of changing the original thing. So you'll find that some problems that maybe creep up in the code or some things that generally make programming hard kind of start to melt away once once you see these practices in play. Yeah, I agree. And you also mentioned um, encapsulation right at the start, which it's kind of one of my favorite things about programming in general. Like anytime that I encapsulate something, I feel good. Like it feels satisfying. Like oh, there's often times where, you know, you might have a, an object and you're referring to the object by its name and its properties. But when you start to encapsulate functionality inside the object and you change a whole bunch of references to the object with just this, refer to itself often that's when i feel like i've done a good refactor hmm. that's interesting can you maybe unpack that a little bit more so there's a lot of times where you might have an object and in the the higher level code you're kind of reaching into the object for a bunch of things and then you're processing it outside of the object itself so it kind of hides a lot of the implementation details in that higher layer for sure it's kind of like yeah what i was saying about how anytime i change a reference to the object you know, like dollar invoice might become dollar this when you encapsulate something inside it. When those sorts of refactors happen, and I am starting to change a whole lot of references to internal references to this, that's when I often feel like, yeah, this is feeling a lot better now because I'm not reaching into it to pull out all this stuff out of it. I'm just asking it to do something with itself. I think the interesting thing too about encapsulation is it gives you a place to kind of remove duplication, right? So, you know, obviously it's a very kind of tendency towards, you know, programmers to, to make sure that we remove all duplication. So, you know, going back to some of these examples, this checking of date ranges or checking of number ranges or to see if something's in an array. Like if you're doing that at a really low level, it's pretty likely that you're doing that in multiple places in your application. So again, to introduce an object, you know, now everywhere in your code, you can, to your point, kind of, change that to be a much more expressive object method call. Yeah. And now that actual implementation detail is is kind of moved elsewhere. It's also easier for other developers to see if something's already been been done or even to remind yourself if you're coming back to it. Because if you've written this logic outside in some controller somewhere and you're now dealing with this object somewhere else, if you just look at what you know what methods the object has on it and you haven't actually encapsulated that then you might go and actually write the same code all over again. Whereas if you've actually encapsulated it, you look through all the public methods on it and go, oh, this object can have this done to it. Yeah. I just call that and it's and it's done. So I think it helps prevent future duplication. Even if it's a really lightweight object initially, it gives you a place to start. And, and yeah, if you're working on a team or you're working on a long-lived project, it's likely that that'll get turned into something over time. 
Yeah. There's one more area um, I want to mention. I don't know if I had an exact example of this in base code, but in the talks, you know, I've given about base code, you know, since I've kind of used it as an example and it's, it gets into kind of an enum. Um, so an enumerable object uh, is one of those things where it's specially for a language like PHP. I actually can consider it, you know, an object. I find that it's just more expressive or it's just more readable. So a really good example, again, going back to PHP is, you know, we throw this options array around, right? Like to kind of configure or, or change the behavior of a method, right? To change the state, we pass in this, this really kind of open-ended options array. And maybe it has some keys for this and maybe it has some keys for that. And maybe, you know, over the lifespan of that application or that code, some of the keys are removed. It's just, it's the wild west. There's no formality, there's nothing. Some developers might think, well, to make an object, like a parameter object for that, seems a bit heavy. And I think that's where enums can really be a nice stopgap because it's very easy to create options enum. And on there, there's the different options. And you're formalizing them at that point. So there's a little bit more integrity instead of these string keys and random you know, data types that those keys point to in your associative options array. Instead, you can formalize that and be like, you know, options colon colon you know verification and so now you have this ability with this enum to not only expressively demonstrate what options you're toggling on just better and again it might feel a little heavier uh, but it's a little more formal and it's definitely more readable than this kind of open-ended options array it shows it shows you what options have been deliberately added as opposed to just having this this dumping ground and the same thing happens in javascript with objects like they don't have associative arrays, but the way a lot of objects are used in JavaScript is basically an associative array. It's just the way that, you know, they're represented. Yeah. Um, where you can just add as many keys values you want to it. Yeah, it's more like a hash. Like a class in in some ways, where you actually do define ahead of time what the available options are, and to add more to them, you've kind of got to go back to the source of truth as opposed to just tacking them in any way you want. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and I think. You know, for that fact alone, uh, again, it improves the formality of it, therefore improving the readability of it, therefore improving the maintainability of it, you know, reducing its kind of perceived complexity. So I, I think it's just all around a good option. And again, it, it's not anything unique. If you look at the language itself, there's plenty of PHP like internal functions that have like a flags parameter. You know, if you look deep enough, it's normally the third or fourth parameter, but there's a flags. And they're doing just that. They're using constants or they're using, you know, enum, enumerable, you know, objects to set uh, how that thing should behave. But it's just, it just reads, you know, a little bit better. So, and again, plenty of languages use this. It's not just PHP, but I find that to be a nice stopgap if you're trying to formalize something, but, you know, not have to keep the primitive, but not have to like define maybe what feels in the moment like a very heavy class with kind of this empty functionality. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably all I have as far as, you know, giving some ideas on how you might be able to push towards objects. Do you have anything else? No, I think that's it for me. Cool. Uh, so next is big blocks, right? Yeah, I think so. Looking forward to that one as well. Yeah, I like big blocks. I, I was pretty proud of that chapter. 
you know, there, there's actually a lot in there, and I know we try pretty hard to keep these just right about 30 minutes, but I'm wondering, you know, maybe Big Blocks might need to be a two-parter. Maybe Big Blocks is a big episode, so gotta split it up just to give a, you know, we call that a, a tease, right? That's a tease, I guess, in the industry. I'm learning all the terms now. Yep, we're getting better at this. Cool. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we can get it all in one episode, but I, I don't want to shortchange it because, yeah, I definitely like uh, that chapter. It was a fun one to write, and uh, I think... You know, we're getting into more tactical chapters, but to me, I probably felt like Big Blocks was the most tactical. Yeah, I think this is also where a lot of them really start to play into each other as well, where they they really support each other. Like each practice, you'll find that you actually combine them together. That's good because I put them in a very specific order, but I also wanted it to be independent enough. Like if you wanted to choose your own adventure and you were working on a, you know, a piece of code and you were like, gosh, we got a lot of nested code. Like you could just jump straight to the nested code chapter if you want. But yes, I totally agree. Like. There is, of course, value in, in going through them sequentially, just like any other, you know, manual or field guide or book or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, sounds good to me. So I guess I'll chat with you next time. See you later. All right. See you. Show notes for this episode can be found at basecodefieldguide.com slash four.